0: what's the joke there's only two kinds of burn bosses there's those who've lost a fire and those who are going to lose a fire it's like it's just like driving right you put in enough hours in the seat you're gonna get in an accident it's just like probability and if you're burning enough and and there's people that are gonna be frustrated at me for saying it but it's just The reality of the situation is a lot of large numbers. If enough people are burning, there will be an escape. And we accept that level of risk in all kinds of other things. Like our highways are carnage and we're just like, no, it's all right. I'll I'll go 85 on this. It's fine. And and like all kinds of other things, farming is terribly dangerous. Uh, And we recognize that all these things create a public good and we, We try and figure out ways to address the risk.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Life with Fire Podcast, the podcast about our relationship with wildfire and how we can better coexist with it in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Monti, and I am very excited to be back and recording some episodes for the podcast after a bit of a hiatus over the last few weeks. But now that we've got fire season kind of knocking on our door, I'm uh, pretty excited to get some episodes out that I've had recorded for a few months and also start working on some partnerships with some new sponsors. We've recently brought on Protect Our Winters as a sponsor for a few episodes later this summer that will explore how wildfires impact recreation access as well as recreation in general. And uh, in the meantime, we have today's episode with Daniel Godwin of the Ember Alliance. I'll tell you guys a little bit more about Daniel in a bit. And we also have an episode coming up with Natasha Stavros, who works at the University of Colorado in Boulder and does some really incredible research that I can't wait to share with you guys in the next couple of weeks. Um, So all that to say, we're really excited to start building some more consistency with our posting schedule, especially as fire season kicks off and folks are more interested in learning about wildfires, as well as how we can better adapt to them in the future. So we talk about adaptation quite a bit on this podcast, about fire adaptation, about coexisting with fire, and almost every guest that we have on makes it very clear that prescribed burning and cultural burning are like our biggest tools in our toolbox in terms of building that adaptation and minimizing the catastrophic effects of modern wildfires, especially as climate change increases the intensity of wildfires, increases the conditions under which extreme wildfires burn, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. I'm probably speaking to the choir at this point, but it is worth repeating that uh, prescribed fires have an inherent risk associated with them, and those risks are often, or rather occasionally and acutely exacerbated by these big events like we're seeing in New Mexico or like we've seen in New Mexico over the last few months uh, with the Calf Canyon Fire and the Hermit Peak Fire, which both started as fuels treatment projects on federal lands, So while we do have a pretty good success rate, 99-point-something percent success rate actually on federal lands with prescribed burning, uh, we do have to accept that sometimes we need to take these risks, sometimes they don't pan out exactly how we had hoped, and unfortunately in many cases these escapes will end up framing public perception of prescribed burning for a while. This is getting a little rambly, but I promise that this is adjacently relevant to our episode today in which we talk about prescribed fire uh, liabilities and insurance, as well as all the nitty gritty details about prescribed fire insurance policies and how access to those policies might inhibit our ability to get more good fire on the ground and therefore build more fire resilient and fire adapted communities. I'll be the first to admit that this topic kind of scares me and is really big and meaty and complex and something I haven't dove into on the podcast yet for that reason. But I've enlisted Daniel Godwin of the Ember Alliance. Um, He is their director of programs and partnerships and kind of much more generally, he's just a really passionate advocate for getting more good fire on on the land as well as helping communities implement more good fire through policy changes and education and the work that he does through the Ember Alliance. So he took us on this wonderful journey into the world of prescribed fire liabilities and insurance, which is an admittedly scary place, as I've already said. So I hope you guys uh, are able to glean a little bit out of this episode. I am sure that you will, because Daniel's very good at talking about this kind of stuff and bringing a little bit of, like, fun almost to the conversation. So that all being said, I will stop talking now, and we will get into the episode with Daniel Godwin. As always, I appreciate you guys listening to the podcast, and if you end up enjoying this episode, I'd love it if you would share it with somebody else who might also be interested in learning about the nitty-gritty world of prescribed fire liability and insurance. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode.
0: My name is Daniel Godwin. I'm the Director of Programs and Partnerships with the Ember Alliance. We're an nationwide nonprofit that does most of our work in Intermountain West. So we've got projects across the country and we're dedicated to creating uh, more fire adapted communities, increasing the pace and scale of prescribed fire and doing a lot of work around, um, you know, creating a more just and equitable fire management community, you know, and that comes out into training and all kinds of work that we're involved with. And so I'm originally from Tallahassee, Florida. So uh, I've heard that phrased as the uh, Silicon Valley of prescribed fire, which I think is a little bit crazy. Uh, Maybe not crazy, but it's a little, um, maybe a little braggy, uh, but there's a lot of good fire there. And they put up more acres in the surrounding communities than many states do, um, some combined even. Uh, So they've got some good bragging rights, but, you know, my first prescribed fire I went to was an elementary school as a field trip. Um, And so, you know, and, and it's funny looking back, uh, I think it was a Cherokee shots came through and there's pictures of their buggy at my school. And I have no memory of that, but I have very vivid memories of this burn. And so maybe that kind of predestined, uh, a little bit where I was going with my life. Um, so I got into fire in Florida. I've worked my way west um, over time. I went to grad school in uh, in Missouri at the University of Missouri. Um, and so I've got a PhD in fire ecology, but I've really tried to, to stay in operations, stay in, involved with that. Um, and as I've kind of continued in my career uh, one of the things that I've somewhat reluctantly become uh, more knowledgeable around is this issue of liability and insurance and things like that as it relates to prescribed fire you know I'm I think I'm very aligned with pretty much everybody you've had come on here you know the, the Lanius Davidsons of the world um, and uh, you know, really believe in the, the value of expanding prescribed fire of getting way more people involved in this, um, but there's some serious barriers as it comes to, to liability and insurance that um, I get a little uh, doom and gloomy about here sometimes because it's, uh, it's a bit of an issue, but we can get to that later. Hopefully answer answered your initial question here.
1: Yeah, that was great. Um, indeed, we will certainly get to the challenges. Yeah. One of my favorite questions is <laughs> what are the challenges that are that you're facing and, uh, and how are you overcoming them? But I'm curious kind of like what your work is like within the Ember Alliance. Um, you said kind of generally what you guys, what your sort of mission is, um, but what yeah. does your, how does your work sort of fit into that?
0: Sure. So I supervise a team of people that are involved with everything in our program that's not strict fire operations or fire training and so we've got a whole other team working on that side of it whether it's putting fire on the ground uh you know trying to increase and diversify the the training availability that's out there and open it up to uh, you know non-traditional learners or you know trying to get more people trained that don't look like me and and for those and the, the listener audience i'm a white guy with short hair and a conservation professional vest right um and so that's the other side of the shop and they're doing great work everything else kind of falls onto my plate which is um uh, you know, I'm involved with a lot of planning projects like community wildfire protection plans. Our team does a lot of that work, working with communities to do wildfire risk assessments, trying to help use kind of best available science and take stuff, uh, you know, I, I like to joke, we take things out of that ivory tower and bring it down to the stump and try and take some of the research that's getting done out there and bring it down to fuels treatment level and help communities do more effective work like that. Um, and then where it's more and more gotten me involved with is kind of this policy engagement level, um, because that's that's one of the areas where I'm kind of bridging a lot of different uh, partners. And uh, I hesitate, hesitate to say expertise, you know, I'm not a, a policy wonk. Um, I listened to some podcasts and I got on a West Wing kick for a little while, but that's about it, right? Um, uh, my backgrounds in geography and anthropology before I got into fire. Like I, I thought I was going to be sorting, uh, you know, projectile points for a while. And so I was on the archeology span track before fire, uh, found that place in my heart where it fit. Um, and so, you know, none of that actually relates to policy. Uh, and so it's been a fun learning curve and I've gotten to work with a lot of brilliant people and, uh, you know, shout out to groups like Western Resource Advocates and, and other ones like that who I've been able to learn a lot from.
1: What does that uh, end up looking like for you?
0: Yeah, um, talking to as many people as I can and a little bit of legislative involvement and then trying to figure out who's working on something at what level and are they talking to each other or not? Um, and some are and some aren't. And trying to connect whatever dots I can and uh, also not be a bull in a china shop, uh, which is, you know, nobody likes the people that parachute in and uh, think they have all the answers. And that's kind of uh, like, that's definitely something we try and do in general in the Ember Alliance. I joke, we're like vampires. We have to be invited through the door. Um, Otherwise we can't come in. You know, everybody's seen the group that thinks they have all the answers, and then they're just like, I'm here, and I'm going to fix it, Uh, especially, you know, groups that have leadership that look like this guy, um, and really don't want to do that, whether it's in the policy shop, in fire operations, whether it's, um, you know, the planning work, Uh, we try and always find the people that are smarter than us and work with them, Um, and, you know, we you've probably run into things like, you know, the whole concept of high reliability organizations, you know, HRO has talked a lot, a lot about in fire, And, you know, one of the principles there is, right, deference to expertise. And it's like, if people are closer to the issue, trust their assessment of it. You know, it doesn't matter if it's uh, who it is, where they are. Um, if, if they're the expert on that system, trust what they're telling you. Um, And we try and like apply that across the board. And personally, I just try, I think that's like a good core value in general of like, hey, you are not as smart as you think you are. And you don't know a lot of things and people other than you know a lot of things. So let's listen to them too.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. That collaboration element is so easy to talk about, but a lot harder to, I think it's a lot harder to practice just with different values and, um, and yeah, and then you have like some of those, some of that leadership that's like really hell-bent on being involved in things that maybe they don't need to be or um, yeah, just totally. And I actually hadn't heard of that um, higher liability organization concept. I actually hadn't heard of that before. Oh
0: man, I have got some literature to send you. Just you wait.
1: Oh my, I, that's, that's exciting. Here I am yeah. actually having fun with uh, lingo and policy as well. Um,
0: we'll put in the show notes. I don't know if you have show notes or not, but I'm just going to say that off the bat here. Um, I do. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yep.
1: Awesome. Um, well, let's dive into the liability issue then. Can you provide my audience with like a 101 on on sort of like the different types of liabilities and how it relates to actually implementing prescribed fire and if that's like a small enough topic that's a pretty big topic let's be real but um but essentially like introducing because my we haven't talked about this on the podcast at all almost except in passing so um really introducing folks to the idea of it
0: so there's a couple of different threads to pull on here um and i feel like that should be if you have like a bingo card, that should be a phrase that you get to check off when people when you ask like an ecologist about something, it's either it's complicated or there's a lot of threats on here. So, um, first off, we can talk about negligence standards as it relates to liability and so different states have different defined negligence standards as it relates to prescribed fire liability. and with the caveat that I'm not a lawyer and I don't play one on TV, right? Um, there's simple negligence, there's gross negligence, um, and there's kind of nuances around that spectrum, right? Um, and gross negligence is the greatest, like the, the largest hoop you would have to jump through. Um, and I'm mixing some metaphors there, but I, I do that often. Um, and gross negligence basically has like a a standard that you've got to to put it in a very simple term really screw up and be like basically drunk on the fire line as a burn boss right simple negligence is uh i believe that follows the reasonable person standard of like asking the question would a reasonable person do this work and uh, i'm sure there's a, a lawyer kicking me under the table for biffing some of this stuff here but um those are the most common ones you see out there, or or there's just don't define it, and that's the that's like the the full like wild west version of it, um, and you see that in some states still, and so a lot of say prescribed our councils are trying to get this gross negligence standard out there, um, because that really starts to to build a framework for other work, right. Um, So how does this relate to other concepts of liability and liability insurance? So uh, let me pull back a little bit. Um, Say you are uh, a nonprofit or a PBA or, um, you know, just a landowner or a rancher or, you know, pretty much anybody other than a state or local government or the feds, you're going to want to carry some degree of prescribed fire liability insurance. And so what does that do for you? Prescribed fire liability insurance protects the burn boss and their organization in the event of a claim based on smoke or in the insurance term here is hostile fire. And that's just kind of fire that is leaving an area where it is controlled. Um, it's also a super rad name for a band, or maybe like a, like a, a book you would buy in an airport bookstore, and it's got like a spy on the front of it, and he's jumping out of a plane or something. But that's the insurance term, and so uh, that's the one we're using here, and so. You know, you can get all kinds of claims brought up against you, whether it's the smoke damaged my drapes or, you know, the fire got out and burned down a woodshed or whatever. You usually, as an organization, have something that's called general liability, which covers just kind of general damages that someone might bring against you. But almost always, uh, prescribed fire and smoke. Are excluded from your general liability coverage. This isn't. This wasn't always the case, but that's the case now. So, uh, you want this insurance because it protects you in the event of things going pear-shaped, and then uh, you have something to kind of backstop how much you would pay. Um, so that's kind of. So. The issue is you need to find someone who's willing to write you that policy. And there's only about four providers in the nation that are writing policies, or not even writing policies, have policies at all, and they're not writing policies at the moment. Um, And there's a lot of reasons behind that, and uh, we can get into that in just a minute, but they're definitely not writing policies and won't even consider you or even consider starting a new program for states that don't at least have that gross negligence standard for prescribed fire. And I know those are kind of two disparate things, but they are interacting here. So negligence standard um, and then prescribed fire and smoke liability insurance, two things, but they interact. There's cogs between them. Does that make sense so far?
1: Yeah, that was a great explainer. Yeah, let's, let's talk a bit about, So so right now, if you don't already have that policy or some sort of policy, presumably, you would have it uh, already for an organization that's been around. And then now they're just not issuing new policies for organizations that are just or individuals that are just looking.
0: So it's a mix. Um, Some pretty major players in the prescribed fire world have had their insurance or prescribed fire and smoke liability insurance dropped. so I think that the term is something like fail to renew or um, you know something like that, but basically it's just like, well, we're not gonna offer that policy to you anymore, even though you had it in the past. So then you're really um, up a fertilized creek. Um, and then you just also can't get new ones, right? And so if you're seeing folks that are already in the market losing them and then other ones, Uh, not be able to find it, that's a real huge bottleneck. Um, And so there's, there's some interesting causes behind this. And so, uh, you know, first off, how does the insurance industry work? They're there to make money, right? And so they look at, uh, they try and quantify risk, like the likelihood of an event occurring, and then they want to bring in more money than they're expecting to pay out given that event right and so uh prescribed fires i think most people listening to this podcast would understand is a very complicated nuanced thing and there's also not a lot of people working in this field um, even with the you know the explosion of work that's happening across the country at the small level it's still You know, you compare this to other um, other fields out there, like you know, plumbing, right, or HVAC. There's a lot of people in those industries, and there's not a lot of people doing prescribed fire. I mean, you could probably take a gymnasium and fit all the RXP twos in the country in it. They might be a little closer than they want to be with the Omicron variant, but like it's there's not a lot of us out here, right? and someone up in that's really plugged into to NWCG at the high levels are like, no, it's gonna take two gymnasiums, but that's, I'm gonna stick with that. Um, so the insurance industry is really reluctant to enter into this prescribed fire liability insurance market. They feel like it's a small market and they have a perception that it's a high risk. Um, some of this perception is there's little data around this. Honestly, it's really hard to quantify and also, it's, it's like a hot button issue. And, and I hate to use any sort of fire puns. I'll use any other puns in my toolkit, but I try to avoid fire puns because there's too many good ones. But it's, uh, it's a technical field and the insurance industry doesn't understand it. And you know, if they're working in Omaha or New York or London, what do they know about fire? They see what's on the news. And they're like, well, that seems scary and bad, you know, I'm seeing subdivisions getting ripped off here, you know, and so where is their incentive to try and stick their neck out? There's also a bit of structural issues of this, you know, new prescribed or new insurance programs are created at kind of a middle management level, which is a kind of a cushy position, I understand. So, you know, why would these people that, you know, have a a nice house. They're pulling in way more money than either of us are. What's, what's worth it to, to put their neck on the line, uh, for a small market, which might have a high risk. And then something goes, you know, they're scared. Something goes badly and they get the repercussions of it. So that's part of it. That's like the, a micro element to this. There's also some pretty major macro, uh, elements to this that I think we need to get into. So the insurance providers, um, there's about 3,500 of them that are going to write a policy of any kind, of any insurance in the country. They rely on reinsurance. And so this isn't well understood, I think. Uh, I didn't know about it until I learned about it, which I guess is kind of a circular statement. I don't know about anything until I learn about it. but. the reinsurance market is insurance that insurance takes out. And so if you're an insurance provider, maybe you have, uh, you know, whatever, three or 4 million that you can pay out at any given moment. And past that, you pull on your reinsurance. Now, reinsurance, there's only about 40 of them in the world, 40 companies. Um, And that's really not a lot when you think about it. And they're doing everything from like, You know shipping traffic to uh you know surgical teams like everybody needs insurance and all of those insurance programs need reinsurance and uh in the past you know five years or so uh they've paid out some pretty huge sums of money Uh, you know, from hurricane Harvey to civil unrest claims to COVID-19 to some of the large loss events in California wildfires, you know, like name a disaster and, you know, it's, there's money that's coming out and that's eventually coming up to the reinsurance market because these insurance providers don't have that money on hand. Um, So the reinsurance industry is trying to ratchet back their risk that they've got. They're gonna increase their premiums and trying to reduce their risk because they've paid a lot of money. And the first job of any business here is to make money. So they don't like that. And so what they've done is they've started writing these exclusions in the policies to the insurance industry that exclude anything wildfire related which is why prescribed fire policies are getting dropped or new ones and and not only are they putting in exclusions they're actually saying if you take on ones we will drop you from our reinsurance which is a pretty like heavy hammer to be hitting uh an insurance provider with right like some of these are huge insurance and some of them are small and traditionally like a small kind of nimble insurance provider, they're trying to find their niche, right? They're looking for something they can make money on that, you know, the bigger, you know, uh, millions and billions, uh, those providers just ignore, right? Cause it's not worth it to them. And so prescribed fire and smoke liability insurance is kind of a perfect weird niche market in that way, because the, you know, the big ones probably won't touch it but the small ones could be nimble and try and do it. But now they're being prevented by the reinsurance industry. So that's not great. Uh, and then, you know, if I think, look towards the future, um, it's also not great. So, um, I'm from Florida. A lot of Florida is flat and at sea level, and all of those homes, uh, as many homes do, have some degree of homeowners insurance, right? And so, what is, what are we seeing? We're seeing more hurricanes that rapidly intensify more quickly. Um, We're seeing just straight up sea level rise, we're seeing larger surge events. And so in the near future, you can bet, I mean, the new IPCC report just came out, right? Like we're gonna see worse, uh, you know, natural hazards and natural disasters and all these kinds of things. Like it's getting worse, whether it's wildfires, storms or whatever. And that means the insurance industry is going to have to keep paying out around these things which means the reinsurance industry is going to keep ratcheting back risk. And so who gets left, uh, out of that it's prescribed fire. Right. And, um, that's kind of like the, the doom and gloom alarm bell that I'm hitting here is like, Hey, uh, you know, we need insurance. We have to have this in some form because nobody has enough money to pay out claims. Um, And there is a risk from prescribed fire. And if you're burning, you know, what's the joke? There's only two kinds of burn bosses. There's those who've lost a fire and those who are going to lose a fire. It's like, it's just like driving, right? You put in enough hours in the seat, you're going to get in an accident. It's just like probability. And if you're burning enough and, and there's People that are going to be frustrated at me for saying it, but it's just the reality of the situation. It's a lot of large numbers. If enough people are burning, there will be an escape. And we accept that level of risk in all kinds of other things. Like our highways are carnage. And we're just like, no, that's all right. I'll, I'll go 85 on this. It's fine. You know? Um, and And like, all kinds of other things. Farming is terribly dangerous. Uh, even pizza delivery has a fairly high risk associated with it, and we recognize that all these things create a public good, and we we try and figure out ways to address the risk. Uh, and some of it we accept, and some of it we try and de- design, uh, you know, financial vehicles or whatever to a, to to try and. Bring money into the equation to deal with the the potential for loss, um, and we don't really have. Uh, we're we're doing some other stuff around that with prescribed fire liability, but the liability insurance market and industry, I don't think, is where the future will lie, just because of you know our terrifying climate future. Um, I say as uh, someone that is living through it right now too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like, I mean, what do you envision as being a way out of that situation? Like there's only so much advocacy that you can do when you're dealing with people losing millions and millions of dollars, ultimately, billions. (laughs) Um, Like what do you perceive to be the way out of that?
0: Yeah. So there's different versions you can think about on this uh, the I think the best approach we're seeing right now is these catastrophe funds and. Um, you know, Lanny Quinn Davidson has been heavily involved with uh, the one in California that they're setting up and basically the idea there is. Um, you know, this state handles the first part of a claim in some way, and then by shifting that, you know, shifting the risk a little bit, uh, or, or significantly you entice the insurance industry to re-enter the market because they look at it and say, okay, whatever the first million, the first 5 million, the first 10 million, whatever number you pull out of a hat, that's going to be taken care of. And so this comes from, uh, you know, there's there's kind of a long history of creating catastrophe funds or uh, impact funds or whatever you want to call it. And there's a really great paper about this uh, as it relates to prescribed fire uh, by Morgan Varner. Um, shout out, Morgan. Also commonly wearing a, a conservation professional vest. Um, and it kind of talks through different ways you can, you can build something out like this. But at, at the end of the day, you're trying to create a pot of money that's, um, it's almost like a public option in some ways uh, that, you know, you take people that have uh, this experience and you say that the state recognizes that the work that you're doing creates a significant public benefit, but you, these individuals or organizations are internalizing the, the risk and tries to spread some of that risk out. Because of the public benefit that it's created, um, and you know, if you think about it, you also, if you want to talk about spreading risk out, this ends up kind of thinking, you know, talking about what we saw with the the push around um, the Affordable Care Act, right? Is like you want more low risk people to be in the market. Uh, so if you think people that are you know, burning 10 acres a year, right, but maybe they put in a certain amount of money um, through fees they pay or something like that, that multiplied out creates a lower risk pool where that money can go into the system and is likely not to pay out. So that's one view of it. Um, where you know the, the user has a fee associated with it. However, as I think we all recognize from health insurance, when you push those fees down onto the individual, there's some certainly uh, non-optimal outcomes uh, as it relates to particularly to like equity and um, things like that, that I think many of us think are important. Um, and it can serve as a disincentive for people to come in. And, and do the work or you're just driving up the cost of prescribed fire further. So then you can also have approaches where you are just straight up having uh, the government taking over some amount of that funding. And that's kind of the approach. Sounds like they're going in California where it's just like, there's a pot of money set aside and you're not paying into it. It's just, it's coming out of the general fund and put aside for this. Um, and then there's kind of hybrid models you can do in between them. Um, so far, it's been kind of a state by state approach. And um, as much as I love the laboratories of democracy, that does bring in some problems. Um, you know, this is a, a valuable thing that burners across the country should have access to. And just because maybe your state doesn't have a, as strong a tax base as California, which is what would be, I keep I think it's the fourth largest economy in the world if it was a country. You know, uh, like South Dakota doesn't have that tax base, but there's a lot of burners there, and they should have access to prescribed fire and smoke liability insurance, or if not insurance, you know something analogous like this. And so, I think the 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 real optimal approach here is some sort of federal approach to this, um, and. know it's hard to say what that looks like uh because if say they tie it to nwcg standards that's problematic um you know i don't see a lot of uh ranchers getting their ic4 so that they can get their rxp2 knocked out um considering that uh most folks on a district struggle with that um so you know there's there's questions around that but you know we've done this before there is like a catastrophe fund tied to uh, to vaccines, actually, to encourage the development of vaccines. You know, every vaccine you get, a certain amount of money goes into this federally managed fund. If there's an adverse health event, um, then that money helps pay out that claim as opposed to, You know merck or whoever getting this large lawsuit filed against them and it came out of some some stuff that happened in the 80s but you know it's there's a proof of concept we could do this and uh i think we have to do this um otherwise you know we are not going to increase the base and scale of prescribed fire i mean it's if if you think about there's that uh, adoption curve of technology, right? Like there's the early adopters, and then there's the folks that wait, um, and then the, the ones who they wait till their friends are doing it, and then there's the holdouts, right? And so I kind of think about prescribed fire like this. Right now, it's all the, the early adopters. Like a lot of us are like the Apple fanboys of prescribed fire. We're going to do it no matter what. We'll wait in the line. We're going to like hand wave away some degree of prescribed fire liability and be like, well, it's probably not going to happen to me, I don't know. Um, but that's not how we get to scale. And like, what's the joke? If you're in a room and you want to sound smart, you say, hey, how does this scale? Um, but seriously, we're not going to get to scale uh, if we can't like address some of these liability concerns um, we can't address those through the insurance vehicles for all the reasons we outlined today. Uh, So we need something else. And I I think it's got to be this like larger scale catastrophe fund at the federal level. Um, Because otherwise, uh, we're just not going to get enough burning done. And, you know, we can't rely on the states the to do all the burning on private land that needs to get done, we can't rely on local governments. There's just too much out there, and there's too many people um, that need to be doing this work. And you know, most firefighters are tied up in fighting fires, right? Like they don't have they don't have the mandate to do the a level of prescribed fire that is needed. Um, so we need this. Um, you know, there are folks who will say that. Uh, liability is a little bit of this, you know, kind of a shibboleth. It's like, it's not as real of an issue. um, And that you're unlikely to be held liable for prescribed fire. I mean, uh, a colleague John Weir's got a a good paper about this. And I, you know, I respectfully disagree. Uh, I think liability exists if people believe it exists. And that's it's someone compared it to the velveteen rabbit, right? Like you have to believe in and it'll happen. Um, but that's kind of how this, like, if people think they will be held liable, then it affects their behavior. Um, if people think that you are liable for something, they will, they are more likely to take legal action. And, this meme is out there, it may not be as fully embedded in some parts of the country, but it is definitely embedded in a lot of the country. So because of that, like the cat's out of the bag, we gotta have some sort of solution to this. I think it comes back to, we just need an ecosystem of different organizations, people, all these kind of things tied into it. Um, you know whether it's contractors, nonprofits, prescribed burn associations, tribes, fire districts, state and local governments like it every this is prescribed fire is an emergency right like we have to treat it with the level of dedication and attention that we do for everything else in emergency management and um we need to allocate resources in that way and Just like emergency management, we also need to recognize that it's not going to be solved from one monolithic approach, right, you know, I I think that's something that the emergency management community has gotten more and more involved with. And like, you can even take an online FEMA training about this and you know it's normalized at that point when there's an online training about it. But like different organizations have to be involved in the response and the recovery and prevention as well. And, you know, different organizations have to be involved in prescribed fire and we need to recognize the urgency around this because it's only getting hotter and drier. Our windows are closing, right? Like. We have a lot of work to do in a fairly short order to, to really get a lot of areas to a level where they can handle some of these climate shocks that are just going to get worse and worse here. Um, so we just we have so much to do that anything that is involved in delaying this, whether it's you know holding up policy or these insurance uh, ball of wax issues like we have to power through these things and fix them because the clock's ticking like we should have been doing this in the 80s and we have lost decades of work um, and it's now you know i mean i think you and i have probably both looked at like what was our co2 parts per million when we were born versus where it is now and then if you chart on there, how much prescribed fire is getting done, they're like, hmm, probably reversed uh, on those curves. Um, so, you know, I, I, if I were to impart anything to people listening to this, it's the importance and the emphasis on urgency around this. You know, uh, we have to move with all deliberate speed around this to, to, to steal a phrase there um, because we're, we're losing our opportunity, right? Like we talk about time wedges a lot in fire management and we're getting really tight on the end of that time wedge. And, uh, that's not good. You know, that's the whole thing, right? We need that green new deal for prescribed fire. We need to, um, and as much as that term has been politicized and become a bit of a, um have a negative connotation in some camps. And I'm trying to make sure prescribed fire stays nonpartisan because God knows we we all need to work on this together. Um, we do need that kind of level of effort. And you know it's 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 a great mass employment scheme. Um, we we could put people to work on a fully separate prescribed fire workforce at scale with enough uh, funding and focus. And if we break some of the funding problems in the federal government, um, we could do it, right? But we gotta, we gotta decide, we wanna do it. But we also have to make sure we don't let that like Cadillac version of the policy solution, hold us up from you know, figuring out whatever, whatever the next best step could be, right? Because, you know, just like any amount of CO2 reduced is, is good. (laughs) Um, Any amount of more prescribed fire in the right place is also good, right? Like you want right acre, right time, right? All that is important too. But like, if we're scaling up, That's all still good. It's doing good work out there. Um, So it's like the balance between um, thinking about this in almost a utopian way, because you can't get there if you can't dream it, while also balancing that against a certain pragmatism, uh, while not letting pragmatism uh, make you accept bad solutions. (laughs)
1: all right folks that is what we've got for you today I want to thank daniel for coming on the show and tackling this really big topic for us i really appreciated some of the nuance that he was able to bring to this conversation and the extensive knowledge that he has uh having worked in the prescribed fire space for as long as he has so thanks to daniel and this will certainly not be the last time that we cover this topic on the podcast i'm hoping to keep diving into this i just wanted to provide something of like a 101 on insurance and liability for my listeners so hopefully you guys enjoyed it hopefully you learned a little bit before i sign off i'd love to ask you guys to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already and share it with somebody who you think might be interested in it if you're interested in supporting us financially we do have a patreon that i will link to in this episode's show notes and other than that i appreciate you guys listening as always and i look forward to catching you on the next one